would you consider yourself a recovering perfectionist? So I don't like the term recovering perfectionist. (laughs) Hey friend, it's David Nabinski here in Brooklyn, here at the Portfolio Career Podcast. We help you take ownership of your portfolio career and design the life that you want to live. Today's conversation is with Catherine Morgan Schaffler. She is the author of a brand new book called The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. Catherine is a psychotherapist, writer, and speaker, and former on-site therapist at Google. And this episode was recorded in an apartment in Brooklyn with approximately 20 people attending. I call these episodes and gatherings podcast mixers. During the episode, you'll hear from other people in the audience ask a question where I literally hand them a microphone for them to ask a question during the gathering. In this episode, you'll learn about perfectionism, You'll learn about how perfectionism is a good thing, the different types of perfectionists, the relationship between perfectionism, control, and power, and why asking for help is actually a good thing as well. As always, this episode with timestamp notes is available on my website at PortfolioCareerPodcast.com. There, you can subscribe to my Substack called Portfolio Career. Um, You can also take my free podcasting course and so much more. So excited for you to build and grow your portfolio career. Here we go with Catherine. Perfectionism. When did you know that it could be like a positive thing for people? So I have worked in a lot of different clinical contexts. I started my career in residential treatment with really young kids who were abused and neglected and had become wards of the state of California. And there was a lot of perfectionism in that population, which was a really highly traumatized population. Then I moved to New York. I worked in a rehab in Brooklyn. I worked in lots of different private practice settings. I had a private practice on Wall Street and saw a lot of women in big law and big finance, lots of perfectionism there. Um, I worked on site at Google as the therapist there, the really international population, lots of perfectionism there. And I was like, how can perfectionism be everywhere? but only talked about in this ring box kind of way. And also the people that I was working with, when you sat with them long enough, what I found was there's nothing wrong with you. Mm. And yet all these people were coming to me, particularly women, with this kind of general complaint of like, I can't find balance. I'm too much of a perfectionist or I'm not enough of this or I'm too much of that. And... So it really made me dig deep into what is perfectionism? What is a perfectionist? We're in the infancy of our research on this. There's no clinical definition of this stuff. And so in absence of the language itself, I kind of looked at all the patterns of all of this work and I put the language the way I saw it in the book. Okay. We'll dive into the book. Um, how like how does perfectionism show up in your life like has it been a ongoing would you consider yourself a recovering perfectionist so i don't like the term recovering perfectionist (laughs) because i don't think perfectionism is a bad thing and we talk about it like it's a bad thing and we tell perfectionists like to just be a little bit less of a perfectionist which the subtext of that that i hear is like be a little bit less of yourself and to me being a perfectionist it's a really enduring identity marker, right? So when people say, I'm a perfectionist, they're talking about who they are. 
as opposed to someone who might talk about something more episodically and be like, oh, I went through a depression after college. But we don't talk about perfectionism that way. We don't say like, I went through a perfectionism after that breakup. We're like, I'm a perfectionist. Here's when my perfectionism gets really bad. It's kind of like thinking of yourself like a romantic or an activist. And in the same way, I would never say to a romantic, I have the solution to all your problems. Just believe in love 25% less of the time. And you'll be fine. It's like, no, romanticism is great. It's great that you're a romantic. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. You should believe in love. That's who you are. Also, you need boundaries around your romanticism or it's going to get toxic and unhealthy. And that's how I feel about perfectionism. I think perfectionism is an innate, natural human impulse that everybody feels. And perfectionists feel it more often than not. And they feel it in a patterned way. And I think it's a really powerful, beautiful, kaleidoscopic energy that just like any power is dichotomous in nature. So love can be life-saving and it can be abusive. That doesn't make love bad or good. These binary ways of thinking about things are really reductionist and myopic and don't tell the full story. In, in the book, you've mentioned this about, uh, and the subtext is around power, but talk to us about this, um, the relationship between perfectionism and power and control. Yeah. Well, so I think when we're afraid, we get controlling. Mm. And when I am afraid, I usually am not aware of it at first. I'm not registering it in real time. I just get in this kind of like, contracted state instead of an expansive state and I and my controlling feels like the responsible thing to do so I think I'm like getting my shit together because I'm gonna you know fixate on generating an outcome that's gonna make this situation positive or keep this situation positive and that's what control means to me it's kind of this cardboard cutout generic version of power where you're just like fixated on generating an outcome because you attach something to that outcome. Like, okay, if I can get this outcome to happen, make this amount of money, lose this amount of weight, make sure my family doesn't fight during the holidays, whatever it is, you're like, then I will be happy or other people will be happy or I will be safe or whatever. And there's so little we can control. And when, even if we achieve that outcome, like the next thing happens and then you have to scramble to reorganize and, and refocus on generating another outcome. And power is not concerned with outcome. It's detached from the outcome. And power to me is understanding the immutability of your worth. So power is about understanding no matter what happens, if I totally fuck up this whole conversation and podcast, I can walk <laughs> out the door and still be worthy of all the love, dignity, joy, freedom, and connection as if I do the best job ever and everybody in here likes me and starts following me on Instagram and buys my book. Like I can still go home and deserve the same amount of rest, the same amount of joy, the same amount of love. Like that stuff is a birthright. And remembering that you don't earn those things makes you powerful. And when you forget that stuff, you scramble to try to earn it and you try to control the amount of it that you get so that you can like rest. And what that looks like in real time is 
oh, I can't wait to be done with this work in three weeks so that I can finally hang out with my friends. Mm. Because until then, like, you don't earn it. And it's like, it looks like making a really, really good plan to be very happy later instead of enjoying your life now. So it's the difference between kind of the presence and the future. Yeah. Control is obsessed with the future. You know, power is lived in the present moment. Um, in the book, you mentioned about this like perfectionist test, um, mm-hmm. how we know that maybe we are acting like a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. Um, can you share about the test? Yeah. So I made a quiz in the book because I frame perfectionism in this like very broad way. And so I, I see five types of perfectionists. And the quiz, you can take at perfectionistguide.com. It's like, I don't know a better way to spend two minutes of my life than an online quiz that doesn't really, (laughs) you know. So let let me share that joy with the world. Um, And I can go through the types if that might help kind of people see that the way that we think about perfectionist, which is like buttoned up, type A, rigid, not flexible person, it's just one <laughs> it's just one tiny way that perfectionism can show up, but perfectionism shows up in so many different ways. Um, and so I talk about the messy perfectionist. And this doesn't mean you present in a messy way. Messy perfectionists love the perfection of the beginning of something. So these are people who are, you know, each of these has its pros and cons. So messy perfectionists are like superstar idea generators. They can just, effortlessly push through the anxiety of a beginning. They will, they love a first date. They love starting a company. They love, you know, the first chapter of the book that they write. But when they hit the tedium of the middle of the process and that isn't perfect, they can kind of abandon ship. Any, so, any, I see some head nods on that. <laughs> you so, got me. <laughs> so the con of this type is that you, you put your hands in a million pots um, and say yes to everything, but you're actually committing to nothing mm. because this type of perfectionist does not accept when they're not managing their perfectionism, that adage of like, you can do anything, but you can't do everything. And these are people who are really like diehard romantics and believe that if you like love it enough, you can push through. And there are like limitations to our time and and money and all of that stuff. And then the counterpart is the procrastinator perfectionist who wants the conditions to be perfect before they start. Mm. So on the pros, these are really thoughtful people. They're great at preparing for things. They're not impulsive, which is a real asset sometimes. And their preparative measures are intense. But on the con side, if they aren't managing this perfectionism, their preparative measures like spill over past the law of diminishing returns and they're like preparing from 98% to 99%. It's like sometimes you just have to execute, you know, the conditions are never perfect before you start. Um, But on the pros side, like once they get to the tedium, that's no problem for them. Once they get to the end, they can close. They just have trouble beginning. Then there's um, the classic perfectionist. And that's like what we think of when we think of perfectionism, Um, type A, highly predictable, really easily add structure to anything that you do. But on the con side, um, can sometimes come off as transactional and can sometimes also feel 
taken for granted because it's like, oh, give it to her. She'll, she'll do it, you know, and you, you know that person is going to do it and do it well. Um, and then there's the intense perfectionist. And these are people who are obsessed with the end of a process being perfect. So the outcome. So if you think of the public persona of like a Steve Jobs or Gordon Ramsay or James Cameron or Anna Wintour, these are intense perfectionists. And on the pro side, they have razor sharp focus and they will get it done. But sometimes if they're not managing themselves well, they get it done at the expense of their own well-being or the well-being or morale of their team. And so it's like, great, you hit your you know, quarterly goals, but in the next quarter, half of your team is quitting because they're all fucking miserable working for you. So that's not really healthy or positive. And then lastly, there's the Parisian perfectionist. And this perfectionism <laughs> is really interesting because it plays out interpersonally. We think of perfectionism as like mm. high achiever, upward mobility, this is what I want. But actually, the, the ideal that the Parisian perfectionist is seeking is ideal connection. And so this shows up most easily as like, I want to be perfectly liked. I want to be perfectly understood. I want to perfectly understand you or God or, or some kind of connection to something. And um, on the pro side, these are people who just, you don't have to explain how powerful connection can be. They just get it. They just know. Um, on the con side, and they're, they're warm, they're enthusiastic, they're naturally inclusive. But on the con side, this can, they can want connection so much that they take shortcuts to the connection which often looks like people pleasing. Mm. So they abandon themselves because there isn't really a shortcut to connection. Yeah. And um, that can get really unhealthy <laughs> fast. <laughs> so those are the five yeah. types. Does anybody have a question about the five types? Um, yeah, Chris, come on up, come on up. Yeah. This is a mic, I know you, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, just what what was your process of making the five types? Were there a hundred types that you whittled down to five? Was it uh Yeah. It's a great question. I just kind of looked at the patterns that were happening in, in my work and noticed that these were the patterns that happened um regardless of socioeconomic status or age or culture or anything. There was something universal about these types and I thought at first like is this related to attachment theory is this this is this that and then um, you know it's just looking at your work from 30,000 feet in the air there's just clear patterns emerged and I could be like in my practice I was like how can I predict that what X client is going through this person will also do, oh, because they're the same personality type about this. And so they're experiencing it in the same way. And it was like a live show understanding of that. Um, speaking about a live show, uh, in the book, uh, well, I know that's kind of meta, but um, in, in, the, in the book you talked about Beyonce. Yeah. Uh, is Beyonce a perfectionist? I would say so. I think she self-identifies as a perfectionist. Um, and I think she's a really good example of a person who is cued into her power and isn't trying to control everything. And the example that I gave in the book was, you know, when Beyonce is on stage, she, you know, a lot of people 
are, are beautiful. A lot of people are good at singing. A lot of people can dance. But she is a master of presence. She is in possession of herself. And so when she's performing, it's she's not delighting us with the performance of memorization of lyrics sung, sung beautifully. It's a showcase of presence. Mm. And you can't fake that. And when you're in the company of someone who's really present, it's hard not to be intoxicated by that in some way because they wake you up to your own presence. And when you're in the room with someone who's controlling, there's something off-putting about it that you just mm. instinctively can feel. And nobody wants to be around people who are controlling, even if they're trying to control things for good intention because it's not healthy. And I think we have an understanding of that on some level. So pre so present. So if we're present, that's a good thing, right? You're saying is mm -hmm. like lean into the things where you're present, whether that's, I don't know, the way that you make your bed in the morning, or, you know, the way when you're present at work, whatever, whatever that is, like you should lean into those kind of situations, even if it doesn't really like seem like it's Presence meaningful. is always a powerful state of being, I think. And I think one... One thing that bugs me about the way we talk about presence in commercial wellness is is we equate it with happiness. Mm -hmm. And you can be present and be heartbroken. You can Oof. be present and be really confused. You can be present and be angry. Um, present, that's why the, the subtitle of the book is A Path to Peace and Power. It's not a path to happiness because happiness kind of comes and goes. Um, and I don't actually think it's what people are really looking for. We don't just want like dopamine hits constantly. And certainly perfectionists don't. We want meaning. And I think we construct meaning by like being our full selves in the world. And you need to be present to do that. And it's hard to be present. And we have a lot of um, escape hatches, <laughs> like drinking and watching Netflix and getting in toxic connections with people and lots of stuff to distract us because being present is hard. It's harder to step into your power than I think a lot of sort of um, self-help and personal development stuff makes it sound, you mm. know, because it's painful to be present at first because you're like, it's, it's painful to be a human being sometimes, you know, it's not like all joyful all the time i was gonna ask like how what's one thing that we could do to be more present but you're, you're saying <laughs> i mean i think it's about not numbing you don't have to do anything to be present you already are present you just have to do stuff to stop leaving the present moment and that looks like you know distracting yourself with drama and binging on things and just just like numbing out and making yourself not feel anything and and realizing that numbing doesn't make you feel good it makes you feel nothing mm. Shit. Um, <laughs> uh, anybody have a, any questions yeah louise coming up thank you going back to the the five types of perfectionists yeah. do you actually see it as being you know a person is one type of perfectionist because I'm sure others have had the same experience, but I identified a little bit with each of those. Right? Yeah. Is it like temporally it changes? Or so is it I think all mental health is fluid and context-based. And we have these categorical models of mental health that are like, you're depressed, sorry. Oh, you're not depressed or you're this. And it's and, and there's a reason that the that mental health is built that way. And the reason is basically that we don't know how else to do it. 
it's not because that's the truth of what mental health is. And so these are all context dependent and fluid. So you could be, you could be like a messy perfectionist when it comes to dating, but at work, you could be a really intense perfectionist. Or you could be an intense perfectionist at work and have these exacting standards and come home to a house that looks like it just got ransacked. <laughs> you know? And um, sometimes at different moments and seasons of our life, like sometimes our access to resources or friendships or connections are different. Sometimes, you know, we're in a city that we're not really in love with or we just got out of a relationship or we're in financial stress and that stuff can trigger maladaptive perfectionism really easily. Yeah. So say the, uh, say the difference between maladaptive perfectionism and adaptive perfectionism. Yeah. So I define a perfectionist as someone who can see the reality that's right in front of them and also an ideal, a way something could be improved upon and all human beings can do that. That's a cognitive capacity unique to our species. But perfectionists see that gap and they feel actively compelled to bridge it. And they feel the, that active compulsion more often than not. And again, in a patterned way. And so the difference between, for example, a high striver and a perfectionist is like a high striver could retire young, let's say 55. They could call it and be like, you know what? I'm going to go on a go to a beach and chill and just like see what happens. <laughs> that would be a nightmare for a perfectionist. Like perfectionists do do not want to do that. Perfectionists cannot stop striving. And it that sounds like a bad thing, but when I thought about like well what else is compulsive? Like I think human beings have a compulsion to tell stories, mm-hmm. certainly to touch or kiss, to make art, to do a lot of things. And so mental health tends to see things that are compulsive as immediately bad. But I was thinking, well, what are we supposed to do? Just sit here and be able to do nothing and just be a template of a human being? That doesn't sound healthy to me. Um, And so I think it's okay to have pieces of you that are compulsive, again, as long as you're aware of them and managing them. To answer your question, healthy perfectionists see the ideal and understand that it's there to inspire you. Mm. Unhealthy perfectionists conflate ideals and goals and think that ideals are meant to be achieved, which is not possible by nature of the ideal. And so two questions guide whether you're in a healthy space. How are you striving and why are you striving? And the how is like, are you striving by burning yourself out or hurting people around you or hurting communities around you? And the why is like, are you striving because you think whatever you're striving for is going to certify your belonging to something that then you'll be deserving of a vacation or then you'll be worthy of love or then you'll be ready to date or then you'll be a good parent once your kid gets into that school or whatever. And if the why is an answer other than because it makes me feel alive because I like it, because it gives me energy, because that's what I want to do, then that's not a healthy perfectionism probably yeah um does anyone have a question yeah um was there anything surprising that you learned about this topic um while working on the book or anything surprising that you learned about yourself while working on the book oh so many things um (laughs) yes so i went back like when did perfectionism get such a bad rap because the perfectionists that i was working with i was like it was mostly women because that's how i that's who I work with in my practice. But I was like, 
these women are incredible. Like, why do they think something's wrong with them? Oh, because everybody's saying that perfectionism is bad. And the and perfectionism was first brought up in psychological literature by this guy, Alfred Adler. And he was Freud's greatest rival. And he wasn't really in competition with Freud. You know when someone's kind of in competition with you and you're like, I'm not, I don't want to be in competition. But Freud and him were equal fame in that first decade of the 1900s. And Freud annihilated him in this very public and interesting way, which I can tell you about later. But the point (laughs) is that uh, Adler was a socialist. And he believed that perfectionism was this beautiful, innate thing. And that if every single person in the world was clean, clothed, fed, free, seen, and loved, there would be no perfectionism. Because what we're actually striving for, that ideal, is interdependence. And he believed that we have that impulse in us because we can see that our reality is this broken world where we're not taking care of each other. And if we just listened to that that sort of throbbing in us that says, do more, do better, and guided it into a place of connection and community care, then our world would be more beautiful. And he said, even if like 98% of people were not starving and only 2% of the world would be, like you wouldn't be satisfied with that. And you'd work as hard to bridge that 2% as you did in the beginning. And I just thought that was such a beautiful reframe of what perfectionism is. Cool. Yeah, Mel. Um, I really enjoyed setting the context of perfectionist and under this historical socioeconomic lens. I'm really curious your thoughts uh, framing perfectionism or our preconceived notions of perfectionism under a feminist lens. Yeah, so I have a whole chapter about that and could have written another book. <laughs> um, perfectionism is a highly gendered term. And so um, there's also a corollary thing that we tell perfectionist women, which is to find balance. It's a directive that is not typically directed towards men. It's, it's um, where to begin? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, in the same, I think language is so powerful. And in the same way, the word bossy like 10-ish years ago, was being used to regulate authoritative power-seeking qualities in young girls. Like, you don't tell young boys, like, stop being so sassy, stop being so bossy. That's something you typically tell to girls. The word perfectionist is being used to temper ambitious, power-seeking women. And if we look at perfectionistic women who are allowed to be perfectionists, you find, like, Martha Stewart or Marie Kondo, women whose perfectionism revolves around archetypal homemaker interests, right? And in those contexts, it's like, oh, the life-changing magic of tidying up and brunches in a pinch and wedding palettes that pop, like suddenly perfectionism is good. And when you look at someone like Serena Williams um, or Anna Wintour, people who don't hide their ambition or level of competitiveness or maybe Anna Wintour's leads and she's not trying to lead in a palatable maternal way. There's so much penalty around that. Um, And so I looked at a lot of language, like resting bitch face, for example. There's no like resting asshole face. (laughs) And there's a reason for that because 
that language catch wouldn't make sense because women are supposed to always be pleasing and palatable, whereas men are allowed to just have a neutral facial expression. Mm. So there's a lot of words like that. Like if you say, oh, she's a strong-minded woman, you don't say like, that, that guy's a strong-minded man. Watch out for him. <laughs> because men are supposed to be strong-minded, you know? So that quality gains a superfluous feature when you attach it to men. And there are a million examples like that in the book. But basically, um, men are not taught to recover from their perfectionism. And they suffer for it as a result. It's not like mm. men are hurting. Men are not in a good place. And the fact that we don't talk about that puts them at risk too. So they kind of are allowed to have an unbridled approach to perfectionism. And they fly towards the sun and women's wings are clipped off in the name of protection. And it's like nobody's winning here. Mm. Yeah, Emily. Hi, yeah, okay. So when I hear perfectionism, I think about these isms. Um, so I guess I'm curious to hear, uh, and you don't like the term recovering perfectionist. I'm curious to hear where your thoughts are in terms of it being an addiction and then how to nurse or recover from that addiction because mm -hmm. isms often are tied to addiction. Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting point. So I think that because, and the research backs this up, perfectionism is an enduring identity marker, meaning like people who relate to being perfectionists relate to that identity their whole lives. And I don't see, and there are exceptions to every rule, I don't see a lot of value in pathologizing something that you feel is part of who you are, right? So addiction is, I think, a useful framework when you're talking about something external outside of you. But when you're talking about who you are, making an enemy out of yourself or even just one part of you is kind of the opposite of healing. And so all these approaches that take an eradication approach of like, we just need to stamp this out of you, mm. you're hemorrhaging energy when you do that because you can't stamp it out of you. Um, and I take an integration approach, which is like, this thing is here. <laughs> sometimes it's going to hurt you and sometimes it's gonna help you. And there are so many things that you can do proactively to, to push it over to the helpful side. And it's still gonna pop up. There's no like fixing everything and making it clean. Like there doesn't need to be. That's, that's not what being a human means is that you just go through life doing what you should all the time. You know, it's like, how could you ever change if that were the case? How could you ever grow? You're constantly becoming a different person. So how could you know how you're going to always react in a situation? So I don't love the framework of, of connecting it to addiction because I think it makes people direct their energy towards resistance when that energy would be so much more powerfully directed towards embracing and then taking that freely, newly liberated energy and proactively managing this stuff. All right. Um, one last question. Um, and then after you answer it, uh, let people know where else they can learn about the book and your work and stuff. But like, is there anything else that you think that we should do? Like, is there like for people that are here and they leave, is there something that they should do? Hmm. Well, in the book, I have a lot of reframes, a lot of different ways to think about things. And I think that that helps 
you to get in a powerful different perspective. So there are 10 reframes. I mean, um, I'm sorry. There's 10 like different ways of thinking about, about all mental health in the book um, and eight behavioral strategies. And so I'm trying to think of like the most powerful thing to offer you here. <laughs> the winner. Um, you know, one of the, one of the mindset shifts I have is that support comes in every color. And I think often we don't ask for help because I hate also, I don't like a lot of things apparently is what the theme of this podcast <laughs> is. <laughs> um, but I don't like it when people say, you know, asking for help isn't a weakness. Because I'm like, who said it was? You know, and I understand where that's coming from. But it's like if I were to walk into a room and my friends were just to say to me like, don't worry, your sweater doesn't look bad, okay? <laughs> it's like, what, because it immediately creates this, like, it supports this narrative of, like, asking for help is a weakness, but don't let people make you think it is. It's weird. And so I think a better way to think about asking for help is, like, asking for help is a refusal to give up. Ooh. And when you think about it that way, it's like, if you, if you're, a really resilient person you're gonna keep asking for help and I have six different types of help in the book because I think that's another barrier to asking for help is is we think of help as only emotional help and that we have to be vulnerable and talk about some childhood situation <laughs> and really it's like you might need financial help you might need informational help like if you're really stuck at work and you're like god I need help maybe labeling what kind of help you need it's like no you just need a 15-minute consult with a lawyer who can help you understand how to file this thing that you're trying to file. And then when you can kind of give language to the help you yeah. need, it feels a little more manageable. Okay. Love that. Um, and where can people learn more? Yeah. Or? So the book is The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. I'm Catherine Morgan Schaffler. I'm on Instagram at Catherine Morgan Schaffler. And my website uh, where the book is right now is perfectionistguide.com. Cool. Let's give it up for Catherine. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, friend. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Portfolio Career Podcast. Would love to hear what you learned and what you enjoyed. Um, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, whatever is best for you. And as a reminder, I'm just one email away as well. This episode with timestamp notes is available on my website at PortfolioCareerPodcast.com. There you can subscribe to my newsletter called One Email Away, which includes the best insights from the podcast and friend-sourced opportunities. So excited for you to build and grow your portfolio career. Thank you so much.